Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here this morning. It's always good to be here. Uh, last week, uh, last week you got to hear Pastor Ed, which is uh, fantastic. We don't get to hear him as often anymore. While Mike and his family are on vacation, next week one of my favorite preachers is preaching. So, though I know you're here every week, I would particularly encourage you to show up next week because I think you will enjoy it. But today. You're stuck with me, and so let's get to it. We are in the book of Zechariah today. Zechariah is where we are. In the Old Testament, some of you might not even know where Zechariah is. I might be making that book up. It is the second to last book of the Old Testament. If you can find Matthew, just go back a little bit, get to Zechariah, and we'll stand eventually to read. But for now, stay in your seat. I want to get kind of a head start because some of you might be news to you that Zechariah is a book in the Bible, and so we're just going to hop into the middle of the book, but I want you to know kind of what's going on here so you have some context for understanding what we're about to read. Does that make sense? So I'm going to give a super brief, I hope, super brief Old Testament history lesson. So that way you can know, I'm going to get you up hopefully in the next two minutes, I'm going to catch you up to where Zechariah starts, okay? And so we'll start really almost at the end of Old Testament history, and that's the nation of Israel is conquered by the nation, uh, is conquered by Babylon. Babylon comes in, this is in 586 BC, they wipe them out, they send them into slavery, they're in slavery for a very long time. Eventually, Cyrus becomes king, says they are allowed to go back to Jerusalem, they are allowed to rebuild the temple, which was destroyed when they conquered them a long time ago. And so 50,000 Jews, along with Zechariah, Haggai, Who else? Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, who was a civil leader. Those four kind of lead them back. They're sort of the avengers of the Jewish people, right? They're going back. It's two prophets, a high priest, and a civil leader, right? And they're they're there to lead the charge. And so they bring them back. They lay the foundation for the temple. They're all ready to build this thing. And then there are problems. The neighbors have complained. That's what happened. They're building this temple. The neighbors don't like it, right? They were promised a view, right? And this is getting in the way. And so, and so they complain. The, they're told no longer allowed to build the temple. And so they take a break for 14 years. 14 years they take a break until finally Darius is king. Darius says, you can build the temple again, right? There was some other stuff that happened. But that's essentially the story. That's where we are right now. Darius says, build your temple. And so, Joshua, Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah are pumped, right? They're excited. Let's do this thing. And so they're ready to build, except there is a small problem. A problem that you guys, I'm sure, have all experienced in different avenues. I think of this, you know, this this is the problem of Saturday morning, right? I have woken up on Saturday morning ready to get something done right? We're going to do some yard work. We're going to, I don't know, baby-proof some cabinets that were supposed to have been done two years ago. Uh, Something, right? And so you're working, you're doing things, and then suddenly, for some reason, you need to take a break. Maybe it's lunch. Maybe it's uh, who knows what. But then, right, that feeling of going back to work after you have taken a break. Is there anything worse? You're just Ugh. Right? Can we like can we go get ice cream or something? Like the, anything would be better than going back to work. Imagine taking a 14-year break from yard work and then having someone trying to convince you to go back to work. This is the problem that they were facing. 
no one was excited to go back to work on the temple. They were all just doing their thing, doing whatever they had invested their lives in, and they didn't, they didn't, want, they want, they didn't want to build it anymore. And so Haggai and Zechariah, the, the two prophets on our team, Haggai starts preaching. This is the, cha- this is the, the, the book before Zechariah, and he is all about constructing the temple. His job in his book is to excite the people to start building the temple again. And so that is the main thrust of his book, while Zechariah, he does have the building of the temple in mind, but he has a more spiritual mission in mind in writing his book. He is aiming for repentance with the people. What is going on in your heart spiritually that you don't want to build the temple anymore. And so he's dealing with everything from a more spiritual standpoint, calling them to repentance. And the first six or seven chapters of Zechariah revolve around these eight visions that Zechariah has. Zechariah, to start off the book, has eight night visions. They're not dreams, right? He's actually seeing these things. And I'll tell you, it's a fascinating read. I would highly, part of my desire today is for you guys to be excited about Zechariah. And they read these visions, read at times like an ADD inducing Saturday morning cartoon, right? There is everything going on in these. They start out with, with, with rainbow horsemen. Then we have a dude with a measuring tape, then golden lance fins. There's a flying carpet. There's a woman in a basket being carried away by a stork, right? We have it all. And you just want to tell Zechariah, like, slow down. What is, like, what does all this mean? The first three visions all deal with God reminding Israel that he, that he has a plan for them. He didn't bring them back from exile. He didn't bring them back from slavery in Babylon for no reason. He has a plan for them. They're going to prosper in the future. The city of Jerusalem is going to grow again in the future. And that's what the first three visions are about. But this fourth night vision of Zechariah takes a turn. It's focusing on how. How can God just just bless people? Isn't there some kind of requirement? Doesn't something have to happen to them before God will just bless them? They just came back from slavery because of idolatry. They were worshiping other gods. Are they, are they better now or something different now? How is it that God can bless them? That is what Zechariah 3 is going to deal with. And if you would, stand with me as we read Zechariah chapter 3. The whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. God, we need your spirit this morning to help us, to show us what this, what this means, how it applies to us, Father. But we thank you for your word and we know that it is living and powerful. God, bless us this morning as we study your word. Pray this in your name. Amen. It's quite a vision, isn't it? Joshua is the high priest. He is in the throne room of God performing the duties of a high priest. This is the beginning of our vision. And in fact, before we get into the vision, I just want to, I just want to break down kind of the overall flow. This is going to divide into two parts. We're going to talk about the vision and then the significance of the vision. It's just the chapter is going to be cut in half. And the point is for us to praise God for His grace and to look forward to what God's doing in the future. We're going to see both of these very, very obvious in this verse. Right? A reminder of grace, a reminder of future grace for Israel at the time and for us now. And so we'll start with the vision. Joshua standing in the throne room of God. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. We could talk for a long time about the angel of the Lord. I'm just going to give you the answer for who this angel is for the sake of time. If you, if you, haven't, if you haven't heard much about the angel of the Lord, buckle up, because the angel of the Lord is God the Son. That's who it is. That's the answer. It is the pre-incarnate Christ, if you want to use theological terms. That is, he is Christ before he became Jesus the man, before the incarnation. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is God the Son, and we know that he, the angel of the Lord appears in a variety of Old Testament passages. He's already appeared in Zechariah once before. And the reason we know he's God is because in many places in the Old Testament, the Bible uses language that can only be ascribed to God. In fact, we'll see this in this chapter. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord is the only one there, and yet it refers to him as the Lord. And then in verse 4, we specifically see the angel of the Lord forgiving sins, which is the sort of thing that only God can do, right? And so the angel of the Lord must be God, yet the Old Testament has a clear distinction between the angel of the Lord and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so this is just a simple process of elimination. He is God, not the Father, not the Spirit. 
got to be the son, right? And so that's who this is. And so Joshua is in the presence of God, but is specifically in the presence of God, the son. And the first thing that happens, of all the things that could happen, being in God's throne room, in his presence, Satan shows up. Talk about an unwelcome guest. Goodness gracious. Satan just shows up and he starts accusing Joshua. Literally, the, the accuser begins accusing. That's what Satan is there to do. To make Joshua, and by extension, since Joshua is the high priest, to make the entire nation of Israel look as bad and as sinful and as undeserving of grace as possible. That's what Satan's there to do. Have you ever been embarrassed in public? Has it ever happened to you where just something happens and you're just like, oh my goodness, I wanted to die. My wife just told me we, we just got my son's haircut. This is two days ago. And he, like many children, I suppose, is not overly thrilled with clippers and scissors being near his face. And so he's just wailing, right? Just, just my wife is like torturing him, holding him in place. My daughter needs a nap. And so she is wailing and an entire room full of people waiting for haircuts are just staring at her. Why, don't, why is your kid crying? Right? And she's describing this to me like, I just, I wanted to die. I just, as fast as I could, as soon as it was over, we just booked it out of there. Some of you might have had situations like that, right? Where, where it's just like, oh, like I couldn't, I could not get out of there fast enough. Imagine, you know, my kids are young. He's not doing it intentionally. He's not trying to embarrass me. Imagine a family member, child, spouse, maybe a close friend, someone who knows you well. Imagine someone intentionally trying as hard as they can and, and as creatively as they can to shame and embarrass you in front of others. There are probably some people who could do a pretty good job at that, right? Right? So imagine someone who knows you very well. What could they say about you? And then imagine, imagine what Satan could say about you. He's not omniscient, right? He doesn't know everything like God does. And yet I can't help but feel like Satan would be better than everyone at making you appear as rotten and terrible as could possibly be. Who better to describe your sin in excruciating, embarrassing detail? And that ignores the fact that Satan is, is the father of lies. Imagine the lies he would tell about you. Extravagant, yet somehow still believable. How bad could he make you look? This is what he's doing. He shows up trying to shame and embarrass Joshua and the entire nation of Israel so that God would take back his grace, that they would no longer be a recipient of God's blessing. Satan accuses Joshua, and then in verse 2, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, has a response for Satan. And I love his response because he doesn't actually try and prove him wrong. In fact, he doesn't bring up anything that Satan, that Satan did. 
God has one response for Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. God's having none of it. Satan, however accurate or not accurate he might be, it doesn't matter. God is not listening. He's uninterested in whatever Satan has to say, and the reason is because he's chosen Jerusalem. He's saying, I picked them. I chose them to be recipients of my grace. And so they will be recipients of grace. No matter what, Satan himself cannot convince God to change his mind about giving grace to whomever he wants. Rebuke you, O Satan. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? You ever, you ever been around a really hot fire? I was in high school, we used to, with our youth group, we used to go to the desert and make a bonfire. Bonfire doesn't even seem like quite the right term. I don't know how to describe it other than we would, we would construct something the size of a house and then douse it in gasoline and burn it down. Um, right? Like this, this was a fire. You, you would need a very long pole to roast marshmallows on this thing. Right? You're, you know, the, the heat is so intense, you're like, a, like half a football field away and you can barely stand it. It's as bright as the sun. It's hot. It's very hot. We would have contests, right? We would have contests to see who could like run up close enough to throw a rock and actually hit the burning, the burning pyre, right? Like this is, this, is what we, this is what we would do, right? In high school for fun, burn things. Um, but it's hot, right? It's very hot. Imagine, and this is the picture of God walking up to that blazing inferno and pulling out, pulling out a log pulling out a branch. I have use for this later. I have a reason for sparing this branch. I've chosen it. That's what it's like for Israel here. He's saying, I've chosen them. They don't deserve it. In fact, we're going to see that very specifically in just the next verse. They don't deserve to be chosen, but he has chosen them, and they are like a branch that has been spared from burning. God rebukes Satan, the last part of our vision, that God cleanses Joshua. Verse 3, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. He's wearing dirty clothes, right? I know what you think of dirty clothes, right? I have a hamper in my house. I put clothes in there. Have you ever, right, have you ever taken, a, have you ever smelled dirty clothes? They don't smell good, do they? I don't know why, I don't know why it's fun to smell things that you know are going to smell bad, but sometimes you just can't help yourself, right? And, and it's, and it's gross. Dirty clothes, except that is not Sort of my, my dirty laundry hamper are not the kind of dirty clothes that are being ref, uh, referenced here. This is literally excrement-covered clothes. That's what this is. Pretty gross. Have you ever been like muddy and wet and you kind of stand like this so none of your clothes are trying to touch you, right? This is, this is how I picture Joshua, covered in the most disgusting filth like he's been crawling through a sewer and 
By all appearances, Joshua has been in these clothes for the entire time. He's just been doing his high priestly duties covered in human refuse. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So he's in dirty clothes. He's going to get pure vestments. Let me give you a, 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 a high priestly uh, fashion tips, you know, 101 here, right? Uh, uh, what the high priest wore, apparently they had a deal with the people who made linen because all they wore was linen, linen pants, linen shirts, linen hats, socks, sunglasses, I don't even know, right? They had just linen everything. And that was, their normal, that was their normal outfit. They would do most of their work there. And this is no doubt what Joshua was wearing when he was filthy, his linen outfits. But they had a priestly tuxedo, if you will, right? They had one special outfit. It's described in the Old Testament to be used specifically after they celebrated the Day of Atonement. And this was, uh, this was blue and uh, gold and purple light. It was very colorful. It had actual gold on it. Um, there was a hat that's involved that had a, a turban that actually had a gold plate on it. I never had a hat with a gold plate. That sounds awesome, right? And they just had that, and there was an inscription on the hat that says, holiness, holiness to God. This was the pure, pure vestments. The, the festive vestment, some of your translations might say, right? And so this is, what, this is what God is doing. He's saying, I'm going to take you out of these dirty clothes, and I'm going to have you wear the nicest priestly clothes there are, the clothes you only wear after the Day of Atonement, because, tells us the meaning right here, because this is representative of the fact that God has taken their iniquity away. He has forgiven their sin. He's removed their dirty clothes. He's given them new clothes. We find it in the New Testament that part of salvation, part of having your sins forgiveness is that you're, you're excuse me, that you're clothed in God's righteousness. And that's what this is like. They've been given the righteousness of God to wear rather than their own sinful, disgusting garb. Zechariah gets in on it in verse 5. Um, he tells him, you know, let him put a clean turban on his head. That just completes the outfit. That was part of the outfit. Zechariah is excited. He's like, let's do this right. Give him the hat. And they agree, right? The angel of the Lord is standing by. We find that at the end. And so Joshua is clothed anew. His sins are forgiven. And that's the end of our vision. It's the main part of the vision anyway. And it's such a perfect picture of the gospel, don't you think? What a story this is. There is, we, 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 know, this, we know this from the whole rest of Scripture, there is not anyone who can stand in front of God who hasn't been chosen by him, who isn't a brand plucked from the fire. We, like Joshua, like the nation of Israel, were in filthy clothes. 
Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags, the exact same idea. That any good work, any good thing, will still have a standing in front of God, filthy, in need of a Savior, in need of God's grace. And this is, this is what this is showing, is that God has grace for Israel. And God will have grace for us. And Satan himself cannot take that away from you if God has chosen you. There's nothing in anyone's power that can remove us from God's grace once he's decided to give it to us. It's our vision. That is, in many ways, the easy part of this morning. We're going to try and tackle the rest of it. And this is where, this is where it starts to get interesting. So you might have to bear with me here a little bit. We're going to talk about the significance, starting in verse 6, the significance. And it would probably be helpful at this point to talk a little bit about how to even interpret the Old Testament. Because sometimes, sometimes it's confusing. And in fact, some of these are going to be a little bit confusing. But it's, I, I want to have as basic and straightforward and logical a way of interpreting, of interpreting the Old Testament as possible. Right? We just assume that it's telling the truth. If it promises something or says that something is going to happen, we assume that that promise will happen, that it will take place. And since we have the helpfulness of hindsight, right? Zechariah was written a long time ago. If we read it and see, well, that was promised, but it never happened in between here, then we just assume, well, that promise is going to happen sometime in the future. We're still waiting for that to happen. Right? That's, that is a very natural and logical and I would say right way of interpreting, of interpreting the Old Testament. And that's going to be helpful here because God makes promises to Israel that don't seem to have happened yet. And this is why passages like this are why we think God really does have some kind of plan for Israel in the future. The actual, the actual country, the actual Jewish people. National Israel, God has some plan for that. We're not, uh, uh, we're not going to focus on that exclusively here, but it's going to be part of what we're reading as, as uh, you read along with me. The significance, starting in verse 6, um, the significance of this vision, God promises a covenant with Israel. Covenant is just a funny name for a promise, an agreement, basically. They make an agreement together. God promises a covenant. Look at this. He says, if, verse 7, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This is what God is promising to Israel. He's saying that you will... Keep my char- or I'm sorry, you will rule my house, be in charge of my courts, and have the right of access, right? Be able to go, you're going to be in charge of the temple, and you're going to be, um, you're going to have access, full access to me. You're going to be in charge of things, basically, is what God is telling Israel. That is based, as we saw earlier, on God's choice of them, but it doesn't happen. It won't happen until they walk in my ways and keep my charge. 
is what he says. It's just an if-then statement. And I, I, I would relate it to the gospel so you understand, right? We just related the first part of the vision to the gospel in that God chooses us. If you are a believer, it's because God chose you like a brand plucked from the fire. And yet, it's not as if we just sat there and God said, you, go into heaven. And you're like, all right, well, I guess I'll get there eventually. You had to do something, didn't you? Something had to happen in order to make God's grace actually come to you. We know it was based on his choice, but we also know what we had to do, and that's have faith, right? We had to have faith in Christ. We had to believe in him and trust in him. And so it's the same thing here. God, he's chosen Israel. Everything he promises them will be fulfilled, and this hasn't been fulfilled yet going to be something in the future. Clearly, God is, these things are going to be true of Israel one day. But not until they too walk in faithfulness. We're going to move on to the more exciting part for you, I think. Because the question is, at this point, who is going to do all this? We see this vision of Joshua being cleansed, which is a symbol of Israel being cleansed. We know that we can be cleansed. The Bible tells us that. But who? How? How how, how is this going to be accomplished? There's a Messiah coming. I mentioned before, Zechariah is a highly messianic book. Only Isaiah has more messianic references than Zechariah, but Zechariah is only 14 chapters. You can read it much more quickly. Um, And so this is, if you've ever wondered, like, what does the Old Testament even say about the Messiah? This is an excellent passage to see. In verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. So he says, Joshua and all your friends, right? Joshua and all the other priests, all this grace that has been poured out on you, all this choosing that God did of you is meant to point to something bigger that's coming in the future. There's that you are, you are men who are a sign, men of wonder, some of your translations might, be, uh, uh, might say. There is something coming, even though this is an incredible outpouring of grace, there's something in the future that's coming that's going to be even better. Look at this. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. And in fact, let me read the next verse. We're going to take all these three together. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its description, inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. We get three descriptions about the Messiah. This person that God is going to send. He is a servant. He is a branch. And he is a stone. A servant is probably the most familiar to you. That Jesus is, was, a servant, and continues to be, is is something that we understand. We see him serving others throughout his ministry in the Gospels. Uh, There are multiple places in the Old Testament that refers to the coming Messiah as a servant. Someone who is there to do God's will over his own. But the branch 
is a funny one. I'm going to send someone. It's going to be the great Savior. His name, the branch. doesn't exactly strike fear into your heart. I, I, I imagine some like half man, half tree, like weeping willowy looking dude. Um, right? Like this, what a weird, what a weird term. The branch. As it turns out this, this appears a number of places in the, in the Old Testament. And this was very, very interesting to me. I hope, I hope you find it cool too. There are four There are four major descriptions in the Old Testament of what the branch is like. And there are some New Testament parallels. Uh, This was fascinating to me. In, uh, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 11, this is the most common Old Testament description of the branch. In Isaiah 11.1, it describes the branch uh, uh, as a shoot from the stump of Jesse a branch from his roots, right? And this is, this is the most common description of a branch. It relates, it relates the Messiah to David. That's all it's doing. It relates it to David, who was a king. And so this reference to the branch is that the Messiah will also be a king. Okay? So hopefully that makes sense at this point. But here's where, here's where it starts to get interesting. We have four Gospels in the New Testament. We have four Gospels, and all of them have their own kind of major theme about what they reveal the Messiah to be, if that makes sense. So Matthew, which we've been studying now for a number of years with Pastor Mike, Matthew, more than anything else, reveals the Messiah as a king. So Isaiah 11, the branch, is a reference to the kingliness of the Messiah, and Matthew, as it turns out, is... uh, 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 its major theme is that, is that Jesus is a king. Here in Zechariah 3, we have the branch related to a servant. I'm going to send my servant the branch. And so this is part of what being a branch means is that he's a servant. The major theme of the gospel of Mark is, is, is of Jesus, is of Jesus the servant. Later in Zechariah, Zechariah 6, we learn about a man whose name is the branch and the Gospel of Luke, the major theme is that Jesus is the perfect man. Finally, Isaiah 4.2 uh, refers to the branch of the Lord in reference to the Messiah. And that's the major theme of the Gospel of John, is that Jesus is God. And so this is the meaning of the branch. He is king. He is servant. He is a man. and He's God. And in fact, any time you see the, the, the messianic reference to the branch in the Old Testament, what you can think in your mind is the entirety of that description in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of the complete revelation that the Gospels will give of who Jesus is. What an interesting description of the Messiah, I think. It completely coincides with what we learn about in the Gospels. This coming Messiah is a servant, he's a branch, and he is also a stone. The reference to a stone, again, there there are numerous references to the Messiah being a stone in the Old Testament. The stone can be good or bad, depending on your reaction to him. On the one hand, the Messiah would be a stumbling stone and rock of offense in Isaiah 8.14. 
Or in Isaiah 28, he could be a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Daniel 2 talks about how this stone would crush nations. In Ephesians 2, we, turn, we find out that Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And so whether, depending on whether you're part of the church um, or whether you're hostile to Christ will depend on whether or not you love the stone as a foundation or fear the stone for how it will ultimately judge you. And so this is, this is the Messiah. This is the one who would come. A servant, king, man, God, and someone who is a wonderful refuge to those who love him and a judge to those who don't. Let's finish the significance. We have two more quickly. God promises redemption and God promises peace. He says at the end of verse 11, I will engrave its, its inscription, talking about the stone, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Talking about redemption. In one day, he says, we're going to remove the sin of the entire land. This is talking about Israel. Again, this is a promise for Israel that we have not seen completed yet, and so we expect it in the future. There will be a day when there will be a mass redemption of Israel. That's what it says in a single day. And we know exactly now how that's possible, don't we? It's because of the cross. In a single day, anyone, in a single moment, anyone can all at once and forever have their sin removed from them. Zechariah even references this day. In fact, you can turn here, Zechariah 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10, and then 13, verse 1. References this day in the future. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. But then 13 verse 1, skip there. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Look at this. Zechariah predicts a day when they will look on him whom they have pierced. The Messiah hadn't even come yet the first time it was written. And yet Isaiah was already predicting, Zechariah rather, was already predicting that they would reject him that they would pierce him, but that one day after that, they would mourn for that and repent over it and have their sins forgiven. God promises redemption. He also promises peace. That's this last phrase that every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It just means that that's, that's just a reference to the times of Solomon when people would do that. That was just a... a, a modern way of saying that they would be peaceful and prosperous. But the main point of this, the main point of this vision is to remind them that God had chosen Israel and that he would be gracious to them no matter what. 
and that in the future there was something that was very much to be looked forward to, the coming Messiah. I think that same thing is true for us. It should remind us that we can stand before God by His grace, not by anything that we've done on our own. And we too are looking forward to something in the future, aren't we? The Messiah is coming again. He'll be coming as king. Zechariah talks about this also in chapter 9, that he'll rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And we'll, we'll be there while Christ is ruling. In a perfect world, we'll be with him. And we should look forward to that day. Remember God's grace and look forward to what he'll do in the future. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for all of Scripture and how it points us constantly to your, to your outpouring of grace on us. I pray that we would love Christ. God, that we would see our need for a Savior, that we would understand how filthy and dirty we are. God, and that we would praise you for your grace and that our lives would look forward to one day when Christ returns. God, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.